0: from J.B. Phillips of the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. Next they journeyed through Amphibolus and Apollonia and arrived at Thessalonica. Here there was a synagogue of the Jews which Paul entered following his usual custom. On three Sabbath days he argued with them from the Scriptures, explaining and quoting passages to prove the necessity for the death of Christ and his rising again from the dead. This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, he concluded, is God's Christ. Some of them were convinced and threw in their lot with Paul and Silas, and they were joined by a great many believing Greeks and a considerable number of influential women. But the Jews, in a a fury of jealousy, got hold of some of the unprincipled loungers of the marketplace "...gathered a crowd together and set the city in an uproar. Then they attacked Jason's house in an attempt to bring Paul and Silas out before the people. When they could not find them, they hustled Jason and some of the brothers before the civic authority, shouting, These are the men who have turned the world upside down and have now come here, and Jason has taken them into his house. What is more, all these men act against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king called Jesus. By these words, the Jews succeeded in alarming both the people and the authorities, and they only released Jason and the others after binding them over to keep the peace. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning, the challenges that it sets before us. The example that it sets before us of Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy as they are undaunted by the challenges of presenting the gospel in a culture that rejected them and rejected their gospel. We thank you that through them we can learn how to share our faith with those around us. Through them we can know that we can have the courage to overcome all that comes our way through them we can know that we can do the most important thing you left us here to do and that is to spread the truth about your son jesus christ with those around us thank you for this passage of scripture open our minds to understand it i pray in jesus name amen how many of you are familiar with the name david livingston Okay, a few of you are. David Livingston, as uh, one uh, dictionary talked about him, said it was this. Uh, he was a Scottish Presbyterian explorer and missionary of Africa. He opened that continent to Christianity and civilization. A tireless worker able to inspire limitless enthusiasm in others... He died in Africa and was buried in Westminster Abbey. Now, what I particularly like about David Livingston is he has some of the greatest challenges in the way of quotes for our Christian lives. He said this, I am prepared to go anywhere so long as it is forward. I thought that was a great thing. I am prepared to go anywhere so long as it is forward. The reason that I find that uh, appropriate for our passage this morning is I think that Paul would have said that as well. I'm willing to go anywhere. I'm prepared to go anywhere. I'm ready to go anywhere so long as it's forward. Turning back never occurred to Paul either. Despite persecution, he went forward. And he he did it by faith. You would think that all that had happened to Paul would dampen his enthusiasm. All that had happened to him and Silas and Timothy and Luke would slow him down, but it didn't, as one writer said, it didn't slow him down one bit. By the way, another quote that I really like of Livingston, I I just want to share it. It's not uh, apropos to our sermon, but he said this, he was told that there would be some men who would come and help him uh, there in Africa if they could find a good road to come. And he said this, if you have men who will only come if they know there's a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there's no road at all. That was the kind of person that he was and the kind of, Challenge that he made and I think we see in him uh, a lot of Paul's character a lot of Paul Paul the setting of our passage this morning in Acts chapter 17 is that Paul and Silas after being brutally beaten at the hands of the Philippian authorities strengthened that fledgling church in Philippi and he traveled approximately 100 100 miles southwest to Thessalonica and then after Thessalonica traveled another 50 miles to Berea uh, for many of us we'd go find a place to rest and recuperate from our wounds right Paul wasn't daunted Paul continued and Paul and his party went on the gospel message was so important to Paul and his companions that despite difficulties, despite persecution, despite personal disgrace, they were undaunted in their task of evangelization. Their commitment to the gospel, their commitment to Jesus Christ, their commitment to do God's will in their lives, I think is an encouragement and a challenge to to you and me in the 21st century to understand just how important the gospel message is. I tell you what, folks, our world needs Jesus Christ. Our world needs the gospel. Our world needs to hear that God has taken care of the problem of sin and death on Calvary's cross. Our world needs to hear, and they need to hear it from us because we are the ones. We are the ones God has set apart to share the message of the gospel with the world around us. One devotional writer said these words, in Matthew 13, Jesus uses a parable about sowing seed to introduce a tremendous concept concerning the kingdom of God. The field is the world, Jesus said, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The writer concludes, we are the good seed of the kingdom. God wants us to scatter throughout the world to bring the message of salvation to the lost. Christians, you are important to God and he has a job for you to do. And we have an example in Paul, an example in Silas, an example in in, um, uh, Timothy, an example in Luke of that very thing. Nothing stopped them. Nothing stopped them. No matter what they encountered, they kept going forward. They didn't turn back. They didn't stop. They kept going forward. And that's what we're going to see. Well, verse 1 of chapter 17, when they had passed through Amphibolis and Apollonia, uh, apparently these were were two cities uh, that... Uh, for whatever reason, Paul decided not to stop at, perhaps they did not have a Jewish synagogue. Remember, it was Paul's practice to go into, first of all, to go into important cities and uh, stop there, go into a Jewish synagogue and there present the truth about Jesus Christ, the fact that he is God's Messiah and he has come and he has taken care of the sin problem. And that was Paul's normal uh, uh, way that he went forward well apparently uh, either they they were too small these two places amphibolus and apollonia because paul passed through them and uh, went right to thessalonica which was a major city in that day it was a city of probably two hundred thousand people by the way i think we see something else about paul's pattern not only did he go into uh, synagogues when he went into a city, but he usually went to major cities. Then he would establish a church in that major city and he would. his expectation was that church would reach out to the cities around. So therefore, he didn't na- need to go to every little city he went through to share the gospel because his pattern was to establish a church in a major city, usually on a major roadway, as Thessalonica was. Thessalonica was on the, the uh, uh, Ignatian Way, I think it is called, the Via Ignatia, uh, which was a highway. It was primarily a military highway. Uh, it was used also by uh, uh, those who would take their goods from one place to another. And uh, Paul would go to a city like Thessalonica, 200,000 people, establish a church and then he would expect that that church would reach out to the smaller cities around and that's the pattern that we see that's why he goes right through amphibolus and uh, he goes right through apollonia he comes to Thessalonica a little thing a little a few more things i'd like to tell you about Thessalonica it was The largest and most prosperous city in Macedonia, it was in a strategic location. I've already mentioned it had a population of about 200,000 and it dominated Macedonia in the areas of commerce and government. It was a free city, which means that they were uh, sovereign in their local affairs They had their own provincial government. They were governed by magistrates and they were governed by a local assembly of citizens. And we see this assembly of citizens at work uh, later on in uh, around verses uh, 5 to 9 as uh, they are called, uh, where they've worked into a frenzy by the Jews who out of jealousy want to see Paul and Silas punished. So that, that was a city, it was a free city, it was a modern city, apparently with a synagogue. Uh, Paul spent three weeks at that synagogue. Uh, now, some people ask, we, we read uh, that Paul came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue, and on three days, he reasoned with them from the Scripture. So, there are some who believe, well, Paul was only in the city three weeks because it only talks about these three days that he went and, uh, to the synagogue and presented Jesus Christ as their Messiah. However, it's probable that he was there longer than three weeks, much longer than three weeks, and we believe that for several reasons. Number one, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, in Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses seven to 10, Paul talks about how he has worked with his own hands to support himself. He worked with his own hands to support himself. And the way uh, he expresses that, it would appear that he was there longer than just those three weeks uh, sharing the gospel. We believe that he spent three weeks at the Jewish synagogue sharing the gospel. And then spent several more weeks reaching out to the Gentile population of Thessalonica. There's a second reason. Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 tells us Paul tells us that the Philippians sent money to him, sent support to him, sent help to him at least two times while he was in Thessalonica. So that again leads us to believe that Paul was there longer than, I don't know how much longer, no one knows how much longer, but longer than the three weeks that he spent at the synagogue. Uh, the third reason we believe that his his time there was longer than just those three weeks is because most of the converts in Thessalonica came out of the Gentile population, came out of, uh, of idolatry uh, keep your finger in the book of Acts and page toward the back of your Bible and you'll come upon 1 Thessalonians and I'd like to uh, share a passage from there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 where we read this. Uh, actually, let me read the context because this is a tremendous passage that shows us how important this church began, uh, became. Uh, it becomes a model church. That's what Paul says here. Uh, for you know, I'll start at verse four to get the context. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. I, I want you to, as we go through this, think about what paul is saying about these people these are people that some came out of judaism some were god fearers we we learn as we read in this passage many were pagans idol worshipers pagan worshipers and uh think about what's being said about them you became imitators of us and of the lord in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They became a model church. Many times, uh, churches study the book of at uh, Thessala- the church at Thessalonica, the books of First and Second Thessalonians, because it was a model church. Uh, there were many churches in the New Testament that you would not study as a model church except the model of what not to do. Um, can you think of a, uh, one book that might stand out? 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is warm. Uh, it's Paul's memoirs. But 1 Corinthians is a, a book. I, I had a professor once tell, a, tell us in one of our classes uh, in seminary that when you go to a new church, the first book you should teach is First Corinthians, because you'll be able to hit every errant thing that churches shouldn't do, and uh, and address every every wrong thing that the Corinthians were involved in. Thessalonica was different; it was a model church, and so it's an important book to, for your own study and for your own reason reading. Uh, In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. In other words, they not only came to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they became great evangelists and reached out to those little cities, reached out to those places around them, and grew the church. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell, now here's the verse that uh, is important to our point. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Uh, we see here that many who came to faith in Thessalonica, many who came to faith in that church came out of idolatry, came out of a pagan culture, came out of the uh, uh, the, the paganism of their area and they came to faith in Jesus Christ. So we believe that what happened is Paul spent three weeks at the synagogue and then was rejected by the synagogue leaders and we find out as we continue to study in this passage that they were re- he, he was rejected because uh, they reject his message about Jesus Christ and so he went and ministered outside the synagogue for at least several more weeks i want you to notice one more thing before we go back to the book of acts uh we read in verse 10 that you that verse 9 tells us they turn from to god from idols to serve the living and true god and to wait for a son from heaven but what is that a reference to the second coming the second these questions aren't going to be tough folks okay uh, you don't have to worry about it Uh, yeah a reference to the second coming that's another feature of the books of first and second Thessalonians there's a huge reference to the the coming of Jesus Christ the second coming of Jesus Christ to set up his kingdom on earth that's another important uh, feature of the books of first and second Thessalonians and of this church so for, for these reasons Paul talks about how he worked night and day to support himself, worked with his own hands, how twice the Philippians sent uh, support to him while he was in Thessalonica and that most of the converts there uh, or many of the converts there came out of of paganism, idolatry. Uh, We believe Paul spent many more than three weeks in Thessalonica. So he would go into the synagogue. That was his pattern. Some would believe And then uh, uh, he would be rejected. That was the pattern we see all throughout the book of Acts. And then uh, he would go to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would accept his message. So, again, Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church became a model church. Well, back in Acts chapter 17. We really we really get a good picture of what Paul's teaching was like when and his method of teaching in verse two. Interestingly enough, in the the book of Thessalonians, in the visit to the city of Thessalonica, we learn the right way to preach. We learn the right way to teach the word of God. That's what Paul is about to uh, that uh, to. Uh, Be an example of and it's what Luke is about to share with us the right way to teach the word of God and by the way it's not three points and a nice story it's not three points and a nice story to finish it up Um, I I was listening to uh, I love to listen to teaching on the radio Um, I sometimes listen to music but if there's a good teacher on I want to listen to that and I was listening to somebody and I didn't know who it was And I'm not going to tell you who it was, but uh, I I was listening and I liked what he was saying. I was really into it. I was really enjoying it. I didn't want to get to my destination too soon because I wanted to hear what he had to say. And uh, but still, I'm struggling. I'm trying to think, who is that? I I, I don't quite recognize that name. And then uh, uh, he was a, a famous preacher, it turns out. But I immediately knew where he came from when after he made these marvelous points, he had a nice emotional story to bring it all together at the end. That's not what Paul says preaching is supposed to be. That's not what teaching is supposed to be. And, uh, uh, and you know, that, me, me criticizing this person is like a flea, you know. I'm a flea compared to him. But nonetheless, preaching isn't, three points, and an emotional story. Uh, We we get a good picture of what preaching is here, what teaching is here in Acts chapter 17. As was his custom, verse 2, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving. So we have three important words here. He reasoned with them, explained to them and proved to them that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. See, the Jews couldn't understand. They didn't know how the Messiah could be both a conquering king as well as a suffering servant. They could not put those together. Both pictures of the Messiah are there in the Old Testament, but the Jews had difficulty in understanding. And as you and I might do, they chose the conquering king, right? That's the one we want to be attached to the conquering king. Uh, but, but no, he's a suffering servant. Uh, yeah, yeah, we don't want to hear about the suffering servant stuff. We just want to hear about the conquering king. And they, they couldn't put it together. They couldn't understand. So what Paul did was he reasoned with them. He explained to them. He proved to them from the Scripture that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Well, the method of teaching that Paul used was to reason with them. That means to argue with them. That's the way J.B. Phillips uh, translated it. They argued back and forth. It was a, a dialogue uh, between Paul and between these people he was teaching. And there was a dialogue. They would raise a question. Paul would answer the question. They would raise another question. Paul would answer that question. And so he, he reasoned with, with them. They would exchange questions, even to the point of argument. Then secondly, he explained to them. Uh, ex- the word explained in Greek means to appeal to reason on the basis of the facts of Scripture. That is, he would show them that this was reasonable. He would open the Word of God, teach them the Scripture, and show that it was reasonable to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It was reasonable to understand that the Messiah could be both a conquering king and a suffering servant. It was reasonable to believe those things. So Paul... uh, reasoned with them he explained to them uh, how this could be and thirdly the third thing we see in this passage is that he proved that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead proving is literally in Greek setting alongside the word translated proving in Greek means to set alongside what was Paul doing he was setting alongside Uh, As one writer said, he opened the Old Testament prophetic scriptures and set alongside the recent historical acts which fulfilled them. So he would would open the Bible to them. Now, I want you to see in all of these things, what is central to Paul's teaching? The scripture. The scripture is central to Paul's teaching. Uh, So much Teaching today, so much so-called preaching today, is, is only is the latest psychological jargon uh, uh, blessed with a scripture verse, and that becomes a sermon. Well, that's not what Paul's teaching was. It's not what Paul's sermon was. He s- focused on the scripture. and he would take Old Testament scripture and then he would show how the events that had happened to Jesus Christ, the events in Jesus Christ fulfilled that Scripture. And so He reasoned with them, that is, they exchanged questions and answers. He explained to them, showed it was reasonable, it was reasonable to accept what the Scripture said. And then He would prove to them, that is, setting alongside the Old Testament prophetic Scripture, and setting alongside that prophetic Scripture, the recent history which fulfilled them. One writer said this, it was essentially an exposition of the scriptures, which after all has been said is the most valuable form of preaching in the present day. Paul's preaching was an exposition of scripture, not human ideas, not human thoughts, not the latest human teaching, Paul's teaching was focused on, based on leading out from the Scriptures, the truth of God, and sharing them in a way that showed that they were reasonable to believe. That was Paul's method. Two words will help us to understand Paul's teaching, I think apart from the three we've already seen in the text. One is exposition, the other is exegesis. Exposition and exegesis. Exposition is setting forth the meaning or the purpose of a writing. Uh, It doesn't have to be a biblical text Of, of any writing. You would use the word exposition. But when we're talking about sermons, we're of course talking about the only text that we're talking about is the biblical text. So exposition is setting forth the meaning. meaning. Setting forth the meaning. We're taking the Scripture and trying to understand what is its meaning. What was its meaning to the people who first heard it? That's the most important question to ask. Not what does it mean to me. That's the last question we should be asking. The last question. That's the last question of Bible study. What does it mean to me? The first question we ask is what did it mean to the people who first heard it what did it mean to the people who first heard it that's exposition exegesis is an interesting word it's a greek word which means to draw out or to lead out to draw out or to lead out what now when both those words they begin with ex and ex is a prefix that usually has the concept of going out or away right we'll do a little grammar here this morning has the idea of going out or away. Well, exegesis means to lead out or to draw out. What a pastor should be doing in his Bible study is to draw out, to lead out what is in the text and draw out what is in the text and what it would mean to the original hearers as the content and the basis for the exposition or for the teaching. You have to lead out, draw out the meaning. Now, there's an opposite word to exegesis. It's called eisegesis. And too many of the sermons that people hear these days are eisegesis. "Ice" means to go into or lead into. It means to force a meaning on the text. In other words, it's the kind of preaching that is proof texting. I know what I want to preach. I have an idea. It's my idea. It's a human idea. All I have to do is find a biblical text that seems to say it. That's called eisegesis. That's not the kind of teaching we want. It's not the kind of teaching that will help us grow. We need, and what Paul did here was exegesis, to draw out of the text the meaning of the text. In exegesis, we interpret the text to understand what the first hearers meant. We interpret it historically. We interpret it grammatically. We interpret it literally. We observe the context. A text without a context is a what? Pretext. Pretext. The pretext we're going to get about eight or nine rules next week when we when we visit Berea that's a neat place you ever been to Berea no I'm just the only place I've been to Berea is on the pages of this book but they were really neat people they they uh, would listen to Paul by day and, and uh, study the word of God by night to see if what Paul said was true uh, we'll get into that next week we'll get some other rules for interpreting scripture i think will help every one of us every one of us so uh, exegesis is to lead out or to draw out uh the meaning of the text for the original hearers using history using grammar uh using the original languages using um uh, understanding uh the, the the text in its context uh, all of those things are important. So we have exposition, we have Jesus, Both are important. Now, so Paul reasons with them. He explains to them and he proves to them by comparing Scripture with the events that the Scripture referred to and uh, that the Christ... And remember, when you see Christ, think Messiah. That's what it means, anointed one, Mashiach. It's the Old Testament Hebrew Mashiach. Christos is the New Testament equivalent. Um, that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, that, that is a, a clear concept in Scripture. And there are numerous Scripture we could go to. And we really don't have time this morning to do that. So I just want to give you some if you would like to pursue it on your own study, uh, Luke chapter twenty-four, uh, all of chapter twenty-four would be awesome. But I'll just give you two verses: Luke twenty-four twenty-six, Luke twenty-four forty-six, talk about and and point to the fact that the Messiah had to suffer. Also, uh, the Old Testament referred to the fact that Messiah would, the suffering servant, the the, the anointed one. Would rise from the dead. Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53, especially the latter part of ch- chapter 53, talks about this one who died yet would see his, his uh, uh, would see those who uh, were alive uh, following him. Uh, Isaiah 53. You can look that up on your own, uh, but it refers to the. Uh, resurrection of the Messiah in Acts chapter, in uh, excuse me, uh, Isaiah chapter fifty-three. So Paul explained, Paul proved, reasoned with them that Christ, the Christ, had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. By the way, one thing I want you to see before we go on is how important the resurrection was to Paul's sharing of the gospel. So many times today when you and I share our faith in Jesus Christ, we focus on the cross. And that's right. There's nothing wrong with that. We focus on the cross. The cross is central to it all, right? But I think a lot of times we forget to mention the resurrection. But as you study through the book of Acts, you find that uh, almost every time they uh, share the gospel, they include the resurrection. Uh, because somebody dying who didn't, wasn't raised from the dead uh, wouldn't say much to us. But when you have somebody who dies... And they are raised from the dead. They are resurrected from the dead. That means that death has been conquered. Sin has been conquered. And Paul included that in his preaching. He included that in his preaching. Well, we're told that some of the Jews were persuaded. Uh, Probably Jason, who is mentioned later in verse 5, was probably among them. Uh, Jason is Greek for Joshua. Joshua. And so Jason was, was probably among that number that came to faith. Uh, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, those, those are the ones who did not go all the way, those were proselytes, but they didn't go all the way to becoming Jews, to, to uh, being circumcised, to becoming uh, coming under the law, uh, but they were known as God-fearers. Well, a large number of them came to faith. And then prominent women. Now, wives were, uh, and women were very important in the Scripture. And uh, when a, a, a wife, a woman, would come to faith, she would take that faith into her family. And many times you see that. We've already seen that in the book of Acts. And you see that in other places. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, talks about the power of a woman in the home. The power of a woman in the home to see her family come to faith especially to see her unbelieving husband come to faith. So we see that here, uh, these prominent women. They were no doubt women of high standing in that society. And they came to faith as well. Well, that causes a problem in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. I, I love that. Don't you love that? They rounded, they went to the went to the marketplace and, and looked around and said, well, there's a bad character, there's a bad character, there's there's a bad character. And they rounded up these ne'er-do-wells, they rounded up these bad characters from the marketplace, they formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house, in, to... Uh, in search of Paul and Silas, in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. The Jews were incensed at the Gentiles' response to Paul's preaching, that they were responding to what Paul said. A church was being established. A church was growing in that area. And so... They round up these, these bad characters. Uh, I, I like the King James Version, which says they were lewd fellows of the baser sort. Isn't that a nice phrase? you go around and say, lewd fellows of the baser sort. <laughs> uh, at any rate, uh, they, were, they were wicked, they were evil, uh, they were bad people. Well, the city officials came out. The charge was that they were disturbing the peace, they were disturbing the Pax Romana. Rome was very uh, serious about keeping peace in the empire, and so they uh, charged them with disturbing the Pax Romana. They charged them with preaching an illicit religion, and they charged them with advocating another king other than Caesar. Now, the charges are they're upsetting society. Well, how were they upsetting society? They were upsetting society by the effective preaching of the Gospel. In other words, Paul and Silas were so effective at sharing their faith in Jesus Christ, so effective at preaching the Gospel that they started to affect society. They started to disturb supposedly the peace of society because they had seen people turning aside from idolatry, turning aside from their pagan worship and turning to God. They were accusing them the charge of declaring an allegiance higher than any other, including government. Now, They are accused of causing trouble all over the world. Causing trouble all over the world. In a sense, there was truth to that. In a sense, there was truth to that. Not in the sense that they were being charged. Not in the sense that they were being charged. But there was truth to that in that when Jesus Christ comes into a life, He changes that life from the inside out. So people were being changed. People who once participated in idolatry, people who once participated in false worship, people who once gave their money to the wrong kind of things and wrong kind of causes, as we're going to see in other places in the book of Acts, these People's lives were changed. Well, in that sense, they were causing trouble all around the world because when a person came to faith in Jesus Christ, what would happen? Their lives would change, their principles would change, the pattern of their life would change. They would no longer participate in the things in their society that were wrong and that would cause a problem in society. You're not locking step with us. You're not accepting the horrific things that our society believes, which the Bible calls what? Sin. We're still facing that today. We're still facing that today. People want us to call sin okay. They want us to call sin okay. But Jesus has changed us. Jesus changes people from the inside out. When people change, by the way, the second thing that happens is society's values are challenged. Because Jesus' values, as one writer said, conflict with society's values. We're facing that right now as we never have before, folks. We are in... Thank God, so far, a non-shooting civil war in America. There is a clash of cultures going on that I've never seen in my life. And you and I are going to be called to stand. You and I are going to be called to stand for the gospel, to stand for the truth of the word of God, Not to be ugly about it. Not to be ugly to people who don't believe as we do. We should love them and reach out to them with the gospel. But society's values are challenged when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And society does not like that. One writer said, Don't expect people who are hostile to you and the gospel to be fair to you. Don't expect people who are hostile to you and the gospel to be fair to you and to me. How have they caused trouble all around the world? Well, Jesus changes people from the inside out. When people are changed, society's values are challenged. Christians are a force. The third thing that happens, Christians are a force for righteousness and we reject immoral principles and practices and that causes us to collide with society that causes us to collide with society now folks there's a way around it and that is to be a stealth christian and be worth nothing to for the sake of the gospel that's possible we could do that we could hide I don't think that would please God, but we could do that. Paul didn't hide. Silas didn't hide. Timothy didn't hide. Mark, excuse me, Luke. I keep wanting to call him Mark. Uh, Luke didn't hide. Fourth thing that happens that's seen by the world as trouble is Christ's teachings do not please people who don't want their selfish lifestyles disturbed. Christ's teachings do not please people who don't want their selfish lifestyles disturbed. Fifth thing, the first reason, the the fifth reason, excuse me, that people are upset by the gospel is people are religiously attached to their religion. And don't want to be told that they're on the wrong path. William Barclay said when Christianity really goes into action, it must cause a revolution both in the life of the individual and in the life of society. So much to cover. Another writer said when Christianity penetrated that old Roman Empire, it was a revolution. It had a tremendous effect. The writer, by the way, is J. Vernon McGee. He said this. Today we don't see much revolution except in the wrong direction. It's too bad we can't have a great revolution of turning back to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Word of God. We need to recognize that we need to get back to the Word of God and to the living Christ. How important that is. Well, they did turn the world upside down in their day. Well, they were made to put up a peace bond, put up money. Uh, it may be the reason, and, and, Paul, and, and uh, uh, Paul left the area, it may be the reason that Paul later said he couldn't visit Thessalonica. He said, I wanted to go to Thessalonica, but I couldn't go. It may be this very reason, this peace bond, that Jason had to put up, uh, that that they would lose if Paul came back to the area. One last thing I want to deal with. There's there's so much more to deal with here, but Paul had an emphasis on the future return of Christ. Not that he not only did he preach Jesus suffering and death. Not only did he preach Jesus resurrection from the dead, but he also. Uh, taught the return of Christ and the millennial kingdom in 1 Thessalonians 3 and 5 and 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. And of course, we look forward to the return of Christ, don't we? Amen. We look forward to the return of Christ. We look forward to Him setting up His millennial kingdom. We look forward to the time when He is in charge. But you know, and I want to end with this, the question for us is, is he in charge of our lives? Is he in charge of my life? Is he in charge of your life? Does he reign right now? Does he reign over our choices and our priorities? Does he reign over our thought life? Does he reign over our attitudes and actions? Does he reign over our money? Does he reign over our time? We can look forward to his coming and setting up his kingdom. But at the same time, we should ask, is he reigning in my life right now? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. There's so much here, Lord. But I guess our prayer is that we would be those who stand up for your truth, don't compromise. Don't be ugly to the unbelievers around us, but to reach out with the truth of the gospel and to tell this world, this world that is consuming itself with sin, that there is a better way. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus'